0: Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. Good Good to see everyone always. And uh, before we delve into the word, just, of course, going to start with a word of prayer. And uh, our sister, Patty Harris, asked specifically for some prayer from everyone. Uh, She shared this last week at prayer. She prayed for herself and just shared that. She's going through some health things and awaiting testing on possibly uh, leukemia. So let's just please, I'm going to lift her up now, but let's be the body and lift our sister up in prayer, okay? Father God, we thank you that we can be here, Lord. We thank you that we can come to learn from you and grow in you, Lord. And Father, we do lift up our sister Patty to you, Father God. We just ask you to continue to fill her with your grace and your peace as she awaits, Lord. Write the words that she needs on her heart, Lord, from you, that it would just give her that anchor and security and knowing that you are are in control that you are the one who knows all the details that she may not know and that we may not know, Father God. And I just pray that you would be with her and pray that whatever it is, it still gives her the chance, Lord, to be at her son's wedding in mid March, Father God. Please, Lord, allow that to happen, Father. Lord, we lift up our church family and our pastor and Michelle, Lord, who are in Israel. Continue to bless that trip, Father God. Continue to be with them. Continue to teach them to pierce their hearts with your truth, to just open up Scripture to them in such a beautiful way while they're there, Father God, that that you could also just grant them traveling mercies when they come back and a sweet time of fellowship when we're all reunited again, Lord. And Father, we pray now for this time delving into your word, Lord. We pray, Father, that it would just bear fruit for you, Father. Lord God, use me as your servant. Empty me, Lord God, of anything of me, that the words that come out of my mouth are solely you, Lord, that we leave here growing in you, that there be no distractions, but we all just focus on your word right now, seeking what the manna is you have for us on this day, our daily bread, that we can leave here and run the race with endurance to glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. And I originally had thought that we would go through the whole chapter uh, this morning. And the youth group can attest it's rare that I can get through a whole chapter. So while pastor's away, you got another two-part series with me. And we're going to finish this chapter on Wednesday night. So the title of today's message is Cling to the King. The youth group and I explored this portion of scripture together on one of our youth nights. Uh, It's the infamous bonfire night that many of you heard about and then pastor shared about my fishing skills. We're not going to go there now. Uh, But uh, on those youth nights, we're doing a study through cliche Christian verses. We're going through those verses that you'll see on mugs and t-shirts and banners and flags and everywhere. And you'll often see, I am the vine, you are the branches which is verse 5, and I intentionally didn't finish the rest of that verse because when you see it, it's often left out. You rarely will see, without me, you can do nothing on that. It's not really, you don't want that part because then that means there's surrender and other things we're going to look at, but it's often left out. And I say all that to say as we enter John 15 today, let's be ready to prayerfully delve into this and open, be open to what God has to say and teach us today. As you know, I like to give a little background when we're doing a study of a book, um, when it's out of our normal way of doing it, book by book, verse by verse. uh, I like to give some context. Why? Because it's important. It's useful. So the Gospel of John was written first century AD. And of course, we know the author to be John. He doesn't openly come out and say it, but, you know, when we think about Paul's epistles and others where they start and the author's just right there, but that said, If you look in John 21, 19 to 24, we learn that it is him. He identifies himself as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's noted four other times in the book. If you want to do the study, it's 13, 23, 19, 26, 22, and 21, 7. Now, this gospel was written a little bit later than the other three, around 90 AD, and that's pointed to also as when you're going through the Gospels, if there's little gaps that you're looking for when you go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can probably go to John and it'll fill in that gap. Now, the Gospel of John is special in that it points to the deity of Christ. It points to believing he is Jesus, believing he is the Messiah, believing he is God in the flesh, 100% man, 100% God. John twenty thirty one sums it up pretty nicely where we read, but these are written... That you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. In the full context of the four gospels, Matthew shows the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. Mark is the gospel of action, youth group, Euthios, immediately. And we see him as the perfect servant. Luke shows Jesus as the perfect human. And then again, John, we see the deity. Even in the way the genealogy is set up, it's set up that we see in Matthew, the genealogy of Christ through his adopted father, Joseph, Mark, it's all action, so we don't get the genealogy. Luke, in the third chapter, we get the biological connection through Mary, Adam, and the lineage of David. In John, we get something else. Right in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In this gospel, we get the fact that Jesus existed before all time. In John, we also see a recurring phrase that points to the Old Testament scripture, which further shows his deity, as you'll see in this gospel often, I am. Now, if you attended Wednesday study with Pastor Jeff, that was a moment for me of just in awe of how the Holy Spirit works, because he and I didn't have any chit-chats about what we would be doing while Pastor was away but it was as though, oh, wait, the Holy Spirit knew what we'd be doing. He was in John 10. And he started talking about the I am the good shepherd. And it was just wild to see his faithfulness. One Another moment I shared with the youth group about his faithfulness. You guys were in Thessalonians on the rapture. And we ended up a year and a half later starting Mark. And we were in Mark 13 looking at all of the description of the end days. That's all to say when we make a commitment to studying his word, to rightly dividing his word, it will bear fruit and he'll have us exactly where we need to be in his word for that moment. So the I am statements that we see, Jesus says in this gospel, I am the bread of life in chapter 6, 35, 48. He says, I am the light of the world in eight, twelve, He says, I am the door in ten, 7, 9. He says, as I mentioned, I am the good shepherd in 10, 11, and 12. He says, I am the resurrection and the life in 14, 6. And then we get to our text here in 15, 1. I am the true vine. So without further ado, let's stand. And we're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 15. My disciples. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, Father. Thank you that we have it all to study and to grow, Lord God. Father, I just ask you to use me as your servant, Father God. Let the words that come out be from you and you alone, Father God. Help every single one of us to be focused on your word and your word alone, Lord. Be with us now in this place, Lord. Use me as your servant, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Cling to the king. We could substitute the word cling. With abide. And this is a word that in these first 17 verses alone, you're going to see abide 10 times. That word comes up. Now, if you ever want to do a dive on the meanings of words, I'm a big fan. Let's not hit the mic. I'm a big fan of the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. I've mentioned it before. I love it because it's beautiful to see how we once actually defined words with a godly and eternal perspective rather than a political perspective. So in 1828... Abide is defined as to rest or dwell, to tarry, to continue permanently, to be firm or immovable, immovable, to remain, to wait for. And the secondary definition, which is more applicable to the part we'll look at on Wednesday, is to be prepared for, to endure or sustain, to bear, to bear patiently. This is the meaning of the word that we see right at the onset of this. Abiding is present. That word, again, comes a bunch. And we also look at a portrait of the action taking place within a vineyard. Now, prior to the first verse where we start, the disciples were up in the upper room with Jesus. The tender moment of the washing of the feet take place. Judas is left. He's off to betray Jesus. And now it's Jesus and the eleven. They're leaving and they're on the road. It's important to note who these verses are too. He's speaking to the 11 disciples. He's speaking to the 11 that we know were in relationship with him. The 11 that we would say we're saved, secured in Christ. These words apply first and foremost to them. And then we glean applications from our life. I point that out because it's important as we go through Bible, as you study the Bible on your own, as we come together and study, you need to make sure that you're looking at the scripture in context and you're also taking into account who it's being spoken to. Because when you don't, if you look at the new apostolic reformation that's going on, verses of Acts, verses of Paul's epistles, they're just shaken and suddenly we need new apostles, we need new prophets, the word isn't complete, this is going to happen today or tomorrow. You've got to take scripture in context. Youth group hears me say this every week. I joke and say that's my public service announcement of taking scripture in context. There is your public service announcement. Take scripture in context. Okay, so they've left the upper room. They're on the road with Jesus in a portion of scripture, John 13 to 16, that many call the farewell disclosure. Verse one says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. This is the final I am of John. And he says, I am the true vine. Now, vineyards were important, and this would mean something to them. They were important culturally and economically. The 11 would know the relationship of vineyards to Israel in Scripture. They would know that, and they would know it well. Now, a side note for us to think about as we're going into this portrait and this allegory metaphor of a vineyard Vineyards are known as being one of the most difficult and demanding agricultural tasks, which makes it even more powerful of an image that we're gonna look at. There needs to be a clearing of ground and stone for the vineyards. There needs to be a wall or hedge built around it to protect it. There needs to be a watchtower, the vat for the wine. The vineyard requires constant and continual pruning for there to be fruit growing. Because without constant pruning the maturity for those rich grapes is never achieved. We read, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, if you turn with me to Isaiah 5, we're going to look at one of the vineyard songs that we see in the book of Isaiah. And this is an interesting little portrait of the intentions that God had for Israel, but they neglect to do it. Chapter five verses one through five of Isaiah. Now let me sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard. My well beloved has a vineyard, sorry, on a fruit very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and the vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. This is the judgment to come for Israel that we know. Again, the 11 that are with him would know this. They would be familiar with this. They would know the vine representing Israel. They would know of the grafting of the vine on the gates of the temple. Israel was to bear fruit for God, to do the work of leading Gentiles to him through the Messiah. And if we look in the Old Testament and why we got to be scholars of the Old Testament, they continually don't do it. But then the Messiah comes. Why we need to be scholars of the Old Testament? Because we just looked at the rapture, the tribulations coming, that's all about Israel, the remnant, because God never breaks a promise and there are promises to Israel still to come. And they, in this time, in this moment, are truly about to reject Messiah unto crucifixion. And here Jesus says, I am the true vine. What he's saying to the 11 in this moment and to us is it's about now being rooted in me and me alone. In the new covenant that Jesus establishes, our identity is first in Jesus and always Jesus. It's not in Israel. It's not in the church we go to. It's not in a person. Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters show it so beautifully. And we have some in our fellowship where it's a beautiful example. They identify with Jesus and then their Jewish ancestry. And my father is the vine dresser. The person that's the farmer, the person in this portrait that's doing all the work is our heavenly father, God. Take a minute and think about that. Relish in that. The God of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the vine dresser. He's the one doing it all that we can abide and bear fruit for his glory. Now, Jesus, in this moment, he knows what is to come. He knows that he's going to be leaving the 11. And in this moment, when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I might be leaving you, but I'm continually and constantly going to be linked to you. Why? The branch is useless without the vine. Its complete dependence is on the vine. It needs constant connection with the vine. Cling to the king. Verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is a verse with a few different trains of thought on it. It can be seen as a literal removal of fruitless Christians, perhaps to encourage them and find ways to make them Possibly bear fruit. And that, that idea comes from the Greek there, which means lift up. And it comes from the way that the vine dresser would actually go, take the branches that aren't doing well, move them a little bit, try to put them in more sunlight to see if they would bear fruit. Now, given that this is to the 11 and one is missing, Judas, I lean to the other train of thought where it's about appearing to abide, but not bearing fruit. True regeneration isn't happening. It's not there. The professing Christian who actually has no fruit of regeneration in their lives. When you see them, they appear to be in Christ, but by surface actions, it's there. And then when you get under, the genuine part of being a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't apparent when they aren't with Jesus. At the time of these words, Judas in this moment is betraying The king he alleged to follow. It makes me think of Matthew 7, where those who profess will say, I did this for you, Lord. I did that for you. Remember when I did this and all these things? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. They were never truly clinging to the king. From a distance, it might look like like they are. They're doing all the motions. They show up to church. They're sitting there. They sing the songs. Yay. But under the hood, it's not there. The heart isn't his. Now, we see also in this, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Viticulturist, there's a little SAT word for the day. Those are the folks that that work the vineyards. They would take the dead wood, they would observe it, and if it isn't linked to the sap, they would gather it and take it away. Why? Because it has disease and sometimes it would, it would just decay and it would also impact the others. So they would even sometimes go to the sap that's running and the one that has sap and clip it a little bit, prune it, that it could bear more fruit. God prunes. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What does it mean to prune? It means to cleanse. Literally, it means to clean in the Greek. How does God do it? Well, he tells them, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We see in this gospel, the word becomes flesh. We see in John 1:14. they lived with him. They worked with him. They walked with him. They are clean because they're with his word all the time. What's the application for us to cling to the king? We need the word. The word is what allows us to be cleansed by God. If you want to get to see Jesus face to face, open up your Bible. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Homework assignment, read all of Psalm 119 today. Take the time and read that whole thing. It is a reminder of what God's word means in the life of the believer. We can't sustain without his word. We can't be blessed without his word. Turn to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That was the first Psalm and first text that I taught when uh, teaching here for the first time. And it was, where are you growing? And we looked at the value of the word and how we need to be in the word. We looked at how it's a trend where we're going and we're walking, then we're standing, then we're sitting, and we're stuck in the sin. We have to have the word to cleanse us. Where are you growing? What's your relationship today with the word of God? If it's just a Sunday thing, it ain't going to work. It needs to be something that's daily. It needs to be something that you're with always. You need to cling to the king. The word is the king. Paul reminds us of the cleansing of God's word in Ephesians five twenty-six. The call for men as husbands that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Notice he's putting it all over scripture. The only way the cleansing, the only way the growth is going to happen is letting this come into you. Men, we have to lead our homes. We need to be led by God first and foremost that we can then lead our families and lead them in word and lead them in scripture. Do family devotions. Do family prayer in Bible time. That's our call for his daughters and for our families. We have to do it. It's a war right now against the family. We have to do it. And why is it the word? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word is the only way we're pruned. Pruning involves cutting. Sometimes it hurts. Men are studying Hebrews and we looked at the chastening of God. And seeing that it's a beautiful thing, even though it hurts because it's our Father and He loves us. We often think that the Word of God is here to comfort the afflicted. It's also here to afflict the comfortable folks. And we have to remember that. The vine dresser's God and the vineyard needs constant pruning. Constant. Abide in me and I in you, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with the Lord. And in the relationship, it takes us seeing that pruning comes in different forms. Sometimes it comes through scripture. Sometimes it comes through trials and tribulations. That's why when we read in James 1, he tells us, Count it all joy, brethren, When you fall into various trials, it's a little promise that we get. Yay, thanks, joy. No, but that's what we're doing and we we can do that because we realize he's refining us. He's helping me get closer to him, that I can bear more fruit, that I can bear more fruit. Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Joseph, how many of you know the story of Joseph? I hope everybody raises their hands. Pop quiz, who's gonna tell it? No, I'm kidding. Now, when we look at the story of Joseph, and this is again why we need to be students of the Old Testament. Don't just think, "Oh, I need is the New Testament. Fake news, you need the whole thing, all 66 books. You need the Old Testament. Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph was imprisoned. That's pruning that led to him being the prime minister of Egypt. Romans eight twenty eight is that nugget. It's a gold nugget that we hold on to when the pruning hurts. Hold on, he's going to work this for the good. I don't know how, I don't exactly see it, but he's going to. So perhaps instead of thinking, why is that bad thing happening? That's such a good person. What if you prayed and said, Lord, work this for good in their life. Lord, help this to prune them that they can bear the fruit that you need for your glory because it's about you. What if that's what we turned it to? Then we're looking at the James 1 joy because it's the realization it gets me closer to Jesus. It gets me closer to the king. And it's again, a relational aspect. Abide in me and I in you. Cling to the king. If you are not clinging, you're disconnected and it won't work. The vine and branch, again, they're in constant connection. Pulse check. Can you say right now you are a constantly connected, abiding bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say that? The connection is constant when we embrace the gift of conviction, when we embrace the trials. It's not this idea that it's a constant connection because everything's perfect and I'm perfect. No, no. But we have an eternal perspective on the trials. Verse five I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Do you see the progression? First it was bear fruit, then it was more fruit, now it's much fruit. It's the line of maturity. It's the line of maturity. Jesus gives a progression to the 11, and it's a progression we need to take hold of as we strive to mature in the Lord. That pruning, we get closer and closer and closer to who he is calling us to be, to how he is calling us to live. We bear much fruit. The much fruit is the refining and growing in maturity. I keep saying the word fruit. What is the fruit? Okay, We have to look at that because in some moments right now, you all would leave and get in your cars and it's like, okay, I'm going to bear fruit. I'm going to go to the ATM. I'm going to get money for this person and I'm going to help them. I'm going to bear fruit. I'm going to call Sally and I'm going to cook dinner for Sally and I'm going to go do this. And you try to work your way to bearing fruit. That ain't the fruit, friends. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another." The fruit isn't the number of followers you have on social media. The fruit isn't the amount of money you have in your bank account. The fruit isn't all of the letters that you have after your name because you have so many fancy degrees. That's not the fruit. The fruit is linked to Psalm 1. Meditating on his word day and night. Delighting in his word that he builds your character. That he builds your character to be as Christ calls us to be. Let this mind, Philippians 2.5, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's the fruit. So now all of a sudden when we read, for without me you can do nothing, it has a big thing because on my own I can do a lot of things. I can get a lot of jobs, I can sing a lot of songs, I can go do this, I can go do that, and I can rack up all these great things. But none of it has eternal value. We can't do anything of eternal value if we're doing it on our own. And notice the last piece of that fruit is self-control. That's what gets us to do Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23. Where we take up the cross, we deny ourselves daily. It's not deny yourself once, daily. That's how we're able to do it. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This is one of those verses where somebody would come and say, bam, you can lose your salvation. Told you, you're gonna lose your salvation now, bam. And I'm gonna say, hold the phone. First and foremost, John three sixteen. there's this word everlasting. I don't know how you take away everlasting. I won't go through a bunch of verses on that. We could. We have to understand when you're saved, the thing that can happen is Satan can seek to paralyze your mind and keep you from God's will. That can happen. And you can get stuck there. And that's where we pray for people and we need it. But Jesus makes it clear he'll leave the 99 to find the one. And if we again look at this scripture, look at this in context, who is he speaking to? The 11, the 11 who aren't professing, the 11 who are truly regenerated, abiding in him, the 11 who aren't the only lost one, the son of perdition to fulfill God's will of Christ on the cross. He's giving a double hit here. One, he's giving the sober-minded message of the reality of judgment to come. There's an eternal judgment to come for those who don't know Christ. They will burn in hell but there's also a special judgment to come for the body of believers. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. We're gonna look at verse 11 through 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. the a seat of judgment, we're talking about when the body of believers' rewards can happen. Jesus is the foundation. We can build on laying treasures in heaven, abiding in him, and doing things of eternal value. Or we just do what we want, how we want to do it. And those are going to be lost rewards, lost opportunities to do things for the king. And this is a time where you have to ask yourself, am I living for eternity or not? Am I pouring myself in what I'm doing? Is it truly called by God? Is it truly what He wants me doing? Only you can answer that, and get in the Hebrews four twelve double-edged sword to know the intentions of your heart. Ultimately, though, we know those not in Christ, those pretending. Those who aren't truly his will end up in hell. But here for the 11, he's reminding them, for you, the fire of judgment is of your life and work. So live spiritually connected to the master. For when you live carnally, the flesh takes gains and eternal rewards away. And it's another reminder of why we cling to the king. And notice the pattern he gives. He shows it's a little trend. Cast off, withered, gathered, thrown, burned. It's a scale for us to be checking and looking. Where am I going on the scale? Am I living in him or am I living like I'm going not there? And it's important to think again about the vineyard. The vineyard has predators. Main predator for vineyard, foxes. And the vine dresser would have to seek and try to protect the fruit from these foxes. They are so sly. This is where sly foxes come through. It was an epiphany for me this week. They're so sly, they come through the night. One of the species of foxes was only discovered a few years ago. That's how sly they are, coming in to snatch the fruit and get it. For us, First Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Be steadfast in the faith. How can you be steadfast in the faith without abiding in Christ? Cling to the king. Rest under the vine dresser's protection from the wiles and the will of the enemy to try to get that. To the eleven here, he's about to leave them. But he's giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. We get that gift too. Right before this, in in chapter 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. You can't lose the salvation, but when the enemy's trying, how did Jesus fight in the wilderness? It is written. It is written. What's the one offensive weapon in the spiritual armor? The word of God. That's what we take. Verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Abide in me and my words. That's Jesus and the Word. And then you ask and you get what you want. Bam! So name and claim it. When you leave here, name and claim what you want. No, that's not what this is saying. Let's be clear on that. Look at the pattern. Abide in me and my words abide in you. Abide in him. That's surrender to his saving grace and lordship. Then abiding in his word. That's constant connection to this. Do you open the book or your app for you tech folks only on Sunday? Do you prioritize your life to be at church, to be with him, to be in his word, to grow in him? The verses leading up to all this, that we've just looked at. It's talking about what it means, folks, to be a true disciple of Christ, abiding in him and his word, and prayers are answered. Why? Well, one, because the prayers of somebody who's doing that are prayers that are surrendered to your will be done. I love a Spurgeon quote on this. It becomes safe for God to say to the sanctified soul, ask what thou wilt, and it shall be done unto thee. The heavenly instincts of that man lead him right. The grace that is within his soul thrusts down all covetous lustings and foul desires, and his will is the actual shadow of God's will. The spiritual life is in master in him, and so his aspirations are holy, heavenly, Godlike. For without me, you can do nothing. It's eternally minded prayers. So, what does this mean? So, before somebody leaves here and prays, And then in a few weeks, they come to me, Vince, I prayed. I remember what you, the cling to the king. It didn't happen. And I will say to you, well, what happened? I didn't get what I prayed for. You got an answer. It did happen. Sometimes we have to understand God says no. Sometimes he says no. And if we believe in the God of creation, if we believe in the God that is sovereign and knows way better what is best for me, and if we're not approaching the word and our prayer life like the Aladdin genie, uh, the, what do you call it? The, the lamp, and you're rubbing the lamp. If we're approaching it not like that, no will be an answer accepted. If it's different than we want it, it will be accepted. He wants to hear our hearts. He wants, he gives us that ability to come to him. But ultimately, if you look at what I think is the true Lord's prayer, John 17, we see how it is to pray surrendered. And that's how we have to pray. The result of abiding is obedience and prayer to him. And that's much fruit. God is glorified. We are his disciples. What's the focus of everything we're looking at? God's glory. That's the focus. Don't ever allow yourself to lose sight. It's all about Jesus. The true vine, Jesus. And the vine dresser, God. And the Holy Spirit embedded within us to draw us unto conviction, repentance, and a relentless pursuit of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love to live for his glory. Now, the second portion that we're going to be looking at today, it sets the stage for what we're doing Wednesday, sacred persecution. Quick ad, come Wednesday night if you can. Make it time. Make the time for the Lord. Show up. Come. It's important for us to pray. It's important for us to be in study of the word. If I told you if you showed up here, all debt will be canceled and you'll have money for the rest of your life, I bet you, bottom dollar, you'd be here. Not a guilt trip, but it is a pulse check. Are you keeping him a priority in your life? I'm just asking. Who can show up from your household? Now, verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. It's the love train. God loves Jesus. Jesus loves us. We abide in that love. And abiding is resting, dwelling, remembering, continue permanently. And what is that love? It has no beginning and end. It's close and personal. It's unchanging. It is without measure. That is the love Jesus pours on you and me. That's love that drives us to obedience. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Keep my commandments. Wait, doesn't that mean obedience? We just were talking. I I love God, but I want to live my truth. I want to do my thing. Like I want to just be me. That's what the world says. You do you. You be you. And this is part of the problem of the church today and why we need to be praying. Because we're neglecting to keep his commandments. And it's not just a checklist of 10 commandments from Exodus. It's all 66 books. It's all of it. That's, That's what we're looking for. How did Jesus obey? He obeyed God the Father unto death on the cross. We are called to obey. Every word, nothing extracted, nothing misused out of context, nothing taken to create a theology that lets you do your sin life, just take his word at face value, verse by verse, word by word. But I don't, but that's hard, but that's tricky. But no, he is the vine. His father is the vine dresser. He wants that obedience unto bearing fruit, unto more fruit, unto much fruit. Cling to the king. To cling to the king, you need to cling to him and his word. Right before this in John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Saints, when you can really think about the depth of love that our Savior has for us, to do what he did on the cross for us, how can you not want to obey that king? How can you not want to? Now, there's going to be ups and downs from my own journey after college of backsliding, It was misery. But I'll tell you something. God won't allow you to straddle the world and the word. Eventually, you've got a choice to make. In an article by D.A. Carson, I saw, no one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures and does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous, but obedience seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, but his memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied, and he cannot remain ambivalent forever. And the article then goes, how do you get through disobedience? And it talks about Psalm 1, the word. That's how. That's why he wants us to keep the commandments because he loves us. He wants us to bear fruit for his glory. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He wants our joy to be full. This is right before he's going to his death. How is Jesus' joyful? It's taking the cross for God's glory and obedience to the Father and fulfilling God the Father's will. The joy that Jesus desires isn't worldly happiness and excitement. It isn't the fun and easy life. It's the joy of fruit of the Spirit, being right with God the Creator, walking in his love, his care, his sacrifice, cling to the King, giving all of yourself, daily. There's a little recurring theme as we look at this. John the Baptist sums it up well in chapter three, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. To cling, we have to diminish ourselves to soul dependence and obedience on him and to him. Verses 12 to 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends from all things that I have heard from my Father. I have made known to you. Love as Jesus loves. How did he love? Death to the cross. Humiliation. Abandonment. Every type of physical pain imaginable. He laid it all down for us. On Wednesday, when Jeff looked at, uh, Pastor Jeff looked at I am the good shepherd, he talked about how the shepherd would lay down his body at the opening of where the sheep were, ready to protect them. Our good shepherd is doing that. He's protecting us, but we have to abide in him to get that protection. And the ultimate predator is eternal death separated from God. And through the cross, he gives us that. Jesus literally gave it all for us. It's the song we sang today. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. And in this, with that idea of the love, it's a message for the church. How do we love? And this is a loving group of people. I know it from the first day I walked in these doors. But how are we living that love? Don't forget, the church is a portrait of the family. Older men and women, pulse check. How are you pouring into the younger men and women of this fellowship? Younger folks, what's your openness to that pouring in? We're sent out to love one another for his glory. And it's a blessing. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. (sighs) Friends. We get to be Jesus's friend. Think about that word, friends. The God of creation, the Jesus who's there from the beginning of all, calls you and me friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. We become friends because we know him intimately. The Bible's history, and it's the living word that we dwell in. Hebrews 4:12 as we looked at it, We know the word. We pray the word. We obey the word. And as we're doing that, we get to know Jesus more and more and more and more. It makes us think, how many of you remember the old worship song, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God, he calls me friend. Think about that. Think of Jesus as your friend. And as you do, do you listen to him? What kind of friend are you to Jesus? Do you listen to him? Do you seek to know him? Do you help him fulfill his will on earth? Do you know what he likes and what he doesn't like? Do you know where he likes to go and where he doesn't like to go? Do you hang out with him? Do you make time for him to go to your house? Yes, virtually, but do you come to his house? The kicker that we get is we again get the Holy Spirit to help us discern and understand it all. So take stock. What kind of friend are you to Jesus? And we're near the end now. Thank you for staying with. Verse 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. God chose us. Now let's avoid the election debate. And in fact, something that I want to plant a seed out there and be as bold to say, what if we stop trying to focus on all the different labels that man has come up with to put God in a box and we just call ourselves Biblicist bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge who he's talking to in this moment is the 11 whom he chose. And he went to them, follow me. And they had a decision to make themselves. They chose to follow him. John 4 19, we love him because he first loved us. That's a humbling thought. He chose the 11 before him in that moment. He chose you. He chose me. And we get to choose to say yes. We get to choose to deny self and abide in him daily, moment by moment. What are you choosing now in this moment? What are you going to choose after this service? What are you going to choose tomorrow morning? Then we see, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Notice it's not, he will give to you. He may give to you. That covers it in itself. Because again, God is sovereign. He knows what's best. These things I command you, that you love one another. He ends all of this portion and he's saying, love each other. Abide in me. And then remind each other, encourage each other of all these things. He knows the arrest is coming. He knows the crucifixion is coming. He knows the ascent. He knows the timeline. But he's saying, remind each other. (coughs) Love each other. So if you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior as your life, I'm going to ask you something. Not to run up here right now. No. But I'm going to ask you to take stock and inventory and pray. If you really want to leave this church, knowing that when you leave, you're leaving promised eternity away from God. And if that's what you want to do, I pray that's not. But if you're like, you know, I don't think I want to leave here knowing I'm leaving and I'm eternally bound to be away from God and in hell, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. If you know, Lord, I'm, I need to surrender. I'm a sinner. I'm depraved. I'm nothing without you. Save me. Let's talk. Now, if you are saved, if you know Jesus and you know that you know that you know that you know, I got some questions for you to think of. How's your friendship with Jesus? How are you abiding? What kind of branch are you? How is your pruning? Are you resisting the clipping and chastening to bear more fruit unto much fruit? And then we think about where we were in Thessalonians. We've got the rapture coming. Who's excited? Yeah. Now, after this portion, what are you going to be doing when he snatches you? Are you just going to be sitting in a chair? I'm waiting for the rapture. Come on, Lord. Or are you going to be busy about his work? How we wait matters. Because think about this. He's giving this to the 11 right before he's going to be going to the cross. He's going to be dead. He's going, there's a lot to come. And he's saying, love each other. Build each other up. Keep doing this. Abide in me. We've got to be doing the work he calls us to until he returns. We've got to love each other. We've got to be in service. We've got to be in fellowship. We've got to be in prayer. We've got to exchange ideas. We've got to do Bible study. We've got to witness. We've got to be the body of Christ until he returns, amen? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race that is set with, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That verse three, that was Hebrews 12, one to three. Verse three is gonna really tie to where we go Wednesday, but for now, cling to the king. Embrace being a branch. Cherish that the vine is Jesus and the vine dresser is God the Father tending to you and guiding you with the sap of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord, and thank you for this portrait of the vineyard, Lord, and what it means for who we are in you, Father God. I pray, Lord, that each and every single one of us would take stock of our relationship with you, Lord God. Take stock in the areas that we need to lean in and embrace your chastening and your refining, that we can bear fruit for you, Lord God. That we can grow and mature in you, that we can build the character that you need in us, that Christ like character to be your hands and feet in such a time where the church is needed more than ever, standing for you, living for you, witnessing for you, and serving you, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to abide in you. And help us to just remember, Lord, you are the true vine. God is the vine dresser. And we thank you for the communion of the Holy Spirit that makes that intimacy that we have with you so vibrant and vital. We love and praise you. Be with us, Lord, traveling mercies for everyone as they go about the rest of their day and that they would still ponder the words that they heard today to bear fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen.